On episode 23 of the Violence Design Lab podcast, let's discuss the dramatic work that your fight should be doing. Fights should reinforce the setting and underscore the tone, they should reveal character, and they should cast the future of the play into doubt. You didn't think they were just a string of cool stage combat moves, did you? Out swords and to work with all! Welcome to the Violence Design Lab podcast, putting the science in theatrical violence. Now here's your host, David Barefoot. Greetings, David here. Thanks for tuning in. If you're just joining the podcast for the first time, I'm a theatrical violence design coach that's here to encourage you to enter the world of stage combat, to coach you towards choreographing better fights, and to train you to tackle the challenges of theatrical violence design. I've been staging fights and violence for professional theater since 1992, and I want to use those 25 years of experience to give back to our fascinating craft and to train the next generation to make it even better. So today, I wanted to talk about the dramatic work that fights and violence need to do on stage. First, let's get the obvious out of the way. If you ask anyone, a director, an audience member, your mom, what happens in a given moment of violence, they'll tell you things like, Tybalt dies, or Marjorie sprays Raoul in the eyes with a can of insect killer, or Forrest Gump gets shot in the buttocks, right? They'll describe the fight in terms of basic plot points. Now, I'm going to start with the firm belief that your fights are already doing that. I've, I've never seen Cyrano lose to Valvere. Mercutio never survives to Act 4. I mean, if the heroic princess doesn't re- rescue the beautiful dragon from the evil knight, we're not telling the story of the play. Every fight person out there is already including the plot-required events in their choreography. But if that's all there was to violence design, our job would be simple. I mean, if that was all I needed to do, I could walk into a rehearsal for any random production of Hamlet and come up with a sword fight on the fly. Just make it up right there. I promise you Hamlet and Laertes will fight, they will change rapiers in a scuffle, and both of them will get stabbed by the poison one. A quick look at the stage directions tells me all I need to know, and I just translate that into the standard stage combat rapier technique, whack out some choreography, and collect my check. But as you can hopefully tell from my tone, I don't think that's the way good violence design happens, though I do know choreographers that work that way. But just creating fights that hit the necessary plot points? That's training wheel stuff. It's amateur hour. Fights like that could be replaced with narration. Seriously, swap the fight out with a Greek chorus or a character like Benvolio telling the prince what happened, and you've just saved the theater some money and a lot of rehearsal time. I mean, some projects would be improved if directors went this route. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Peter Jackson. That cartoon physics action sequence in The Hobbit when the dwarves escape the goblin mines? Yet there's a reason Tolkien's book summed that part up in about three sentences and focused on Bilbo and Gollum. So, But if you want your work to be absolutely essential to the production, to impact the audience, if you want to be an artist... You need to go deeper than that. You can't just act out the stage directions. You also have to think about and design all the other dramatic work your violence should be doing. These are the things that will make your work stand out, that will create art that goes way beyond plotting out the simple mechanics that'll make a safe fight that hits the narrative plot points. In other words, the real work of violence design. I want to focus on three main areas of that work today. Number one, your violence design should reinforce the setting and underscore the tone. 
plays don't take place in a vacuum. They happen in a time and a place, even if those details aren't explicitly laid out, and your design should be organic to that setting. Let's start with a very tangible example. Weapons. The weapons you include in your violence make an immediate visual impression on the audience, and they have the potential to immediately anchor the scene in the setting or to be strange and completely jarring. I mean, sometimes weapon choice, of course, is a no-brainer. If you're designing the uh, the scuffle in Fool for Love, for example, you're not going to suddenly throw in longswords. But I can't tell you how often you'll see Shakespeare pieces set in modern eras that inexplicably still use swords. I mean, to me, business suits and swords are a weird combination. I saw a Julius Caesar set in the Vietnam War era where the rebel senators committed suicide with combat knives while literally wearing service 45s and several frag grenades. I mean, yes, I know Shakespeare had themselves slaughtered with daggers, but how many modern people would choose a knife in the guts over a bullet in the brain? See, when a show changes the original setting, you have to translate the original violence to the new setting. And it's not enough to simply swap out historical weapons for modern ones. You have to figure out what the violence meant socially and culturally in the setting from the play as written and find the equivalent violence in the new time and place. There was a brilliant example of this recently in the Chicago area when Victor Bayona and Richard Gilbert of uh, R&D Choreography staged the fights for a hamlet that was set in 1920 Chicago and they had cast the royalty as an organized crime family. Well, what do they do with the fencing bout at the end, right? I mean, it's easy. There was certainly sport fencing in the 20s, so just give them masks and foils and choreograph it, right? And that's certainly one way to go. But Vic and Rick thought that was low-hanging fruit. And more importantly, sport fencing didn't pass their gut check as a way that mafiosos might do some competitive sparring in the era of Jack Dempsey and John L. Sullivan. So they went with a bare-knuckle boxing match in full-on prize fight style. How did they handle the poison blade? Well, Laertes pulled a knife when he was losing, immediately changed the nature of the fight and Hamlet's response. Now, was it more work to choreograph and and rehearse a believable boxing match? Absolutely. But the payoff? Gold. Because it really captured the era and the cultural sensibility of the production. You're going to encounter directors who want to update or change the setting of a period piece, but either don't have the budget or resources for guns or have some hang-up about using them. And they often have weird ideas about swords. I've done post-apocalyptic settings where directors are sure that because society is broken down, we'll go back to using swords. And, and they mean like rapiers and long swords, weapons that take a high degree of craftsmanship to make and lots of study and practice to use effectively, or at least to use in the way the directors envision. Now again, this is an example of a setting when a nicely crafted sword is jarring, but a, a fire axe or a machete might not be. But sometimes you won't get full artistic say on what weapons you can use, or you won't get the budget to get exactly the weapons you wish you could have, so you might need to get creative. I know, shocking, right? Well, now let's talk about tone. Tone can be summed up as how a fight feels. Now, I know that's an abstract description that that wouldn't fly in an academic paper, but it's a quick and dirty way of thinking about it. Is it a comic fight or serious? Is it realistic or stylized? A swashbuckling hero story or gritty and dark? The tone of your fight has to match the tone of the production in general. 
And tone was my biggest complaint with the goblin mine escape scene in The Hobbit. I grant you that the film is a fantasy, and, and I accept the presence of goblins and orcs and magic, but in terms of the world tone, it's realistic, dark, with life-and-death consequences and real emotions. Until the dwarves engage in that crazy goblin warren chase-slash-escape scene, which was full of wily coyote, falling physics, super-heroic kills and rescues, and just so much over-the-top stuff going on that it was cartoony and completely out of step with the tone of the rest of the movie. I mean, the scene committed some other sins, which I may bring up later, but tone was the big one. And tone is a huge reason why production meetings are so important, to get all the designers on the same artistic page and keep the look and feel of the show consistent across all the disciplines. Tone can affect fight in many different ways. If I'm doing a a campy, swashbuckling, family-friendly version of The Three Musketeers, I might choose to go with epee-bladed rapiers that aren't historically accurate, but give me that super-fast speed and ting-ting-ting sounds that fit the tone. But keep in mind, though, that creating tone is not locked in to any single factor. I would never argue that the Three Musketeers movies from the 70s were not campy and swashbuckling, but Swordmaster Bill Hobbs used full-size rapiers and historically accurate wheel-lock pistols and yet created cinematic and acrobatic fights for larger-than-life characters in full literary hero mode. So it isn't just based on your weapons or a single bit of choreography. There's a lot of factors that are involved in creating tone. Tone can be tricky, and this is the area I see most new choreographers overlook. Because the stage combat you probably learned in a class or workshop is is pretty vanilla, pretty neutral, and it's supposed to be. Your instructors were trying to give you a toolbox of technique that you could then adapt to whatever situation you were faced with. But if you stick it in a show just like you learned it, you're basically staging a fight in Hollywood stage combat tone or historical sword fighting style, and that default might not match the tone of the production or deliver the audience impact you're shooting for. So, your violence needs to reflect the setting and underscore the tone. What else? Well, number two, theatrical violence should reveal character. Theater is a storytelling medium. Everything in it is designed to show us characters involved in a story. Even the fights in theater are not martial arts demonstrations or sporting events. Theatrical violence is character development by another means. Nothing reveals a character's true nature, like someone trying to kill them or hurt them. Violence strips away the social mask they wear, the the false images they have of themselves, and reveals what they really care about and value. Your fight design must be inextricably connected to the characters involved in it. I often tell students that any fight that can be lifted wholesale from one play and dropped into another play with different characters is a poorly designed fight. I don't care how intricate the sword work is or how innovative the blood effects are or how much rehearsal it took to bring the actor's athletic abilities up to speed. If the fight can be freely interchanged, it is generic and not tied to character. That means it's a great fight for a workshop or a class where it serves as a standard choreography for many different students and scenes, but it has failed as a piece designed for a specific production. Now, I realize I might get pushback on this opinion. After all, can't skilled actors take a piece of choreography and, while doing the same moves, imbue the fight with character and intention in any number of ways? Yes, they absolutely can and should. 
They can also do that with lines that have no specific character or meaning written in, too. They're called contentless scenes, and they're a standard training exercise in acting class. Now, I don't mean to get off on a rant here, but when's the last time you heard someone rave over the powerful words and impactful drama in a contentless scene? Oh, that's right. Never. You never have. When we are impressed with the acting in a contentless scene, it's because we're impressed by the actor's ability to convey a sense of meaning and purpose to the lines and to give us a context for the scene in spite of the words. We're amazed that through their craft, the actor made us understand what was actually going on with the characters under the meaningless dialogue on the surface. Do you want to be an artist who relies on actors to give your fights context and meaning in spite of your choreography? Your fights shouldn't demand that actors expend their energy just trying to give the moves a story or to relate it to their character. Everything about the fight, from the location to the weapons to the fighting style to the tactics to the outcome, should be inextricably linked to the play and the specific production and the characters. Now, there's there's two main ways to reveal character during a fight. One is physicalization of personality And number two is a dramatic change. And there's definitely others based on the unique circumstances that arise in uh, specific scripts. But those are the two go-to ones that I look for in just about every fight I design. The first one, physicalization of personality, simply means that the way a character fights should reflect their general nature. Uh, A gruff and aggressive character who's always urging his king to charge ahead and bring war to the enemy shouldn't be tentative or overcautious on the battlefield. The devil-may-care swashbuckler who's quick with a quip and supremely confident and witty repartee should take just as much satisfaction in her perfect form and the stylus ease with which she dispatches the Grand Vizier's mooks. A character who's been timid and afraid of confrontation the whole play should have choreography that shows them untrained to fight or afraid of physical injury. Now, you might be saying, David, David, that's pretty on the nose, isn't it? Just physicalizing exactly what we know about the character already? It's obvious. It's not a strong choice. It's boring. First of all, yes, it's what we expect to see. That's a good thing because it's one more factor that reinforces character. My friend Tony Wolfe was hired by Peter Jackson to be the cultural fighting styles designer for the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Tony was responsible for creating the fighting styles of the orcs, the uruk the riders of Rohan, the Gondorians, elves, goblins, Easterlings. He designed these styles from the ground up. Weapons, armor, tactics, everything. Now, imagine if his uruk weren't brutal, fearless killers that preferred heavy cleaving weapons and smashing through anything in their path. It would be completely incongruous with the creatures as we understand them if they suddenly whipped out a small sword and and had a lot of swishy-pokey moves. Yet it would be jarring to see them gnash their teeth and uh, foam with the mouth and then pull out, I don't know, paired short swords and fight in swirling graceful moves like Legolas, right? Or strange to just see them fighting no differently than Boromir or Jon Snow or Lancelot. But the same disconnect happens when you plug-and-play, quote, standard choreography that doesn't differentiate between characters. If they all fight the same, or all fight like you, the net effect is that the actors all seem to stop acting during the fight. 
That's right. When a character's fighting persona is completely different than their persona in the rest of the scenes, it highlights the fact that now they're doing choreography and it completely torpedoes the audience's immersion in the character. Physicalization of personality simply means that characters should fight like their character. It's not everything in the world, but it should be your baseline. But to mix it up, Let's move it on to the other way to reveal character, the dramatic change. Now, this is a significant shift in the way a character fights because of something that happened during the violence or just before it starts. This is Macbeth fighting with supreme confidence right until he learns that Macduff was not a woman born. This is that meek accountant who suddenly snaps and goes berserk on the man robbing the bank. The dramatic change can be a change of priority. That means someone who's primarily concerned with protecting their own skin, who becomes heroic when a child is threatened, for example. It can be a fighter who gets injured and is now looking to escape rather than to win the fight. But this technique of seeing the character change relies on big contrast. That's why it's called the dramatic change. See, See what I did there was... Never mind. Well, suppose... Westmoreland is a character who makes a reckless attack and nearly dies when his opponent unexpectedly counterattacks. If Westmoreland then fights a bit more circumspectly, uses a few more feints, and makes sure he gains the opponent's blade before moving into measure, that's not a dramatic change. That's an adjustment of tactics, and it's a great subtlety that some of the audience will pick up on. It might even reinforce that Westmoreland is an experienced fighter, but his character's goal, his overall emotional state, his way of fighting, didn't fundamentally change. But if Westmoreland was suddenly so freaked out by that near-death experience that he was suddenly convinced he could do nothing to stop his opponent and was going to die, that would be a dramatic change. Imagine him suddenly completely on the defensive, backing away, a look of terror in his eyes, his blade slashing, trying to keep the other man at bay. You get the idea. The thing to remember is that for a dramatic change to be communicated to an audience, it needs three things, a setup, a catalyst, and focus. We need to establish the way a character fights or tries to resolve the conflict at the start of the violence to set up the change that's coming. Sometimes a dramatic change happens in the scene just before the fight, and when those happen, the playwright has often done the work for you and written lines and situations that highlight how the character is forced to change when the swords start flying. But other times, though, you may want to put a change within your fight. For these, you need a few seconds for the audience to see the before or the normal fighting of the character. And this can range anywhere from a few moves to a couple of phrases, depending on the length and complexity of your violence. Next, you must insert a catalyst, something that clearly forces the character to change their fighting style, to reprioritize their goals, or otherwise make the dramatic change. A dramatic change has to come from somewhere. Characters don't alter what they're doing unless it's not working. A common catalyst is the death or serious injury of a friend in the same fight, causing the character to attack recklessly, heedless of their own safety. Or another dramatic change we often see is a loss of confidence because an enemy revealed a terrible secret in the dialogue during the fight. Whatever the catalyst is, that's up to you, but it has to be in there to have a meaningful dramatic change. But all this work designing the setup and putting in the catalyst is going to be for nothing without focus. That is, 
If 27 people are fighting simultaneously on stage in a huge battle, most of the audience is likely to miss a single character's dramatic change unless they happen to be watching her at the right time. So in order not to waste your efforts, make sure that you throw focus in some way to the character at the moment of the catalyst and the change at the very least, and it's best for the audience to either be very familiar with the character already or get some focus time with the character setup. Usually, I don't like to put big dramatic changes in the middle of a lot of stuff going on on stage because the audience still can look away at their friend that's in the other side of the melee and miss the important moments. Usually, I try to highlight these as much as possible and force the audience to watch the change happen so that we're all together on the same page. Now, dramatic changes, they're not for every character. I mean, this tool can be overused. Use it too much, and there's no, there's no baseline, no consistency the audience can grab onto. Usually, as a general rule, no more than one character in any given fight will have a dramatic change, and rare is the show that calls for two or more during all the violence put together. But if every character can't change, how can you keep it interesting? Well, I'm glad I asked me that. That brings me to the third kind of work your fights must do. Cast the future of the play into doubt. This is a way of saying that well-crafted fights ask a dramatic question, and they keep up the tension until the choreography answers it at the last. The most basic question is, of course, will the character survive the fight and live, or will he die here? Now, generally, this is usually a no-brainer question, because most audiences assume the main character will somehow make it out alive. And this is exactly why George Martin's uh, Game of Thrones series shocked so many people when obvious, quote, main characters like Ned Stark were killed without undue ceremony or chance of escape. I mean, there was no rescue, no drawn-out poignant last words, nothing, just death. Martin used a couple of notable deaths like that early on to cast the future of the story in doubt, and it forces the audiences from then on to wonder who's going to live and who's going to die every time that swords are drawn. They feel like there's no guarantee. But there are also many other kinds of dramatic questions to ask, even when the survivability of the main character is not in question. For example... How will the character deal with an opponent who... dot dot dot? In Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indy faces a giant of a man who shrugs off Indy's punches without effect. So how will Indy deal with him, right? Or after the fight on the Cliffs of Insanity, we're pretty sure that Wesley and the Princess Bride can handle himself in a sword fight, but how will he deal with a wrestling match with the enormous Fezzig? We know that Zorro is agile and resourceful and will get away in the end, but how is he possibly going to manage to evade seven guards attacking all at once? Once you figure out the dramatic question your fight is asking, you need to keep the outcome unclear as long as possible. That means the character faced with a question needs time before that dramatic question is answered. We need to see them either try several things and fail before they find the right solution, or to have the stakes and challenges keep getting ratcheted up moment by moment until the character fails or succeeds through heroic effort. Now, Steven Seagal is a highly skilled martial artist, but though his movies are full of fights, they have some of the most tensionless action I've ever seen. I mean, there's no question that Seagal's character is going to win the fight, okay, 
But also at no point is the future of the story in doubt in any way. The best we can hope for is for you to revel in a bad guy's pain when Seagal performs a particularly vicious move. But contrast this with Jackie Chan movies. We know he's going to win. He's Jackie freaking Chan. But here's a guy who understands how to work with dramatic tension. His characters are never sure they're going to win. He's always on the defensive. All his stunts with props and acrobatics, they aren't to show off. They're desperation moves because in that moment before, he was about to get clobbered. So, to sum this whole episode up, your fights have to do more than to simply hit the required plot elements. They need to be more than a string of moves in the relevant style. At the end of the day, you as the violence designer are a storyteller, just one that paints pictures with movement and weapons rather than words or watercolors. So get out there and get working. Hey, if you found this podcast useful, please let others know about it. Share it on Facebook and then head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show and leave a review on the podcast page. I'd really appreciate it. Also, did you know that this show has a Patreon page where you can show your support in a tangible way? Go to patreon.com forward slash violence design lab and pledge a few dollars a month to keep this show going, like Marcus and Stuart and Brendan and Melissa have. Even a pair of dollars a month is greatly appreciated. It defrays the cost of the web hosts, and it shows that you value the content you're getting week after week. Thanks in advance for your support. It really means a lot to me. Until next week, keep the fights on stage and peace in your life. David, out. Thanks for listening to the Violence Design Lab podcast. For more tips, tutorials, and downloadable resources, visit us at violencedesignlab.com. 